Hey everyone, welcome back. Episode three of the BCF podcast. Had some fun so far. We have a great guest today, Tavio Hobson, uh, former BC basketball player. Um, went on to have a further basketball career we'll talk about. Um, now a respected businessman and, and somebody that's still a friend of ours and someone whose opinions and, and thoughts we respect a lot. So we're excited to have him on. So a lot to cover and we tend to go long here. So let's just, let's dive into it. Uh, Tavio, welcome and thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's always good to connect with you guys. Uh, you know, lifelong relationship. So happy to be on. Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, just speaking on lifelong relationships, uh, obviously we all ran into each other around, what, 2002? Mm -hmm. um, you're yeah. coming in from Seattle. Um, so tell us a little bit about that transition uh, and your origin back in Seattle prior to coming to Boston College. Uh, you know, it's kind of crazy, actually, because I, I went to BC having never visited. Uh, and so I think probably a little known story is the way I actually got connected to BC was Bill Cohen, shout out to Bill Cohen, uh, head coach at Northeastern, was recruiting my high school teammate, Brandon Roy. Okay. And he was recruiting them hard, like they were coming after him hard. And uh, my dad was the head of the AU program that both Brandon and I played for. And during the course of recruiting them, uh, you know, I had some small school offers, Portland State, Pepperdine. Uh, Cohen basically said to my dad, hey, you know, if your son ever wanted to uh, look into coming to BC, you know, we'd love to have him as a walk-on. And I guess through their conversation, my dad had already told Cohen that my dad kind of had that conversation with me where he told me I wasn't going to play in the NBA. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I was, I was a sophomore in high school, we had just come off of uh, taking second at BCI Nationals. You know, I made the all-tournament team, and I'm thinking, like, I'm to the league. And my pops brought me into the office and was like, listen, Tavio, I've been doing this a long time. He was like, you're not going to make it to the NBA. He was like, he was like basketball's going to take you a lot of places. is not going to be one of them. So he's like, I want you to choose your college based on what you want for your future outside of basketball. And so when it came really time to make the decision, it was really down to BC as a walk-on, Oregon as a walk-on, Arizona as a walk-on, um, or Portland State uh, on scholarship. And uh, I wanted to get away from home. You know, I wanted to go to the East Coast. I knew I probably wouldn't settle there, but I wanted to get away from home. And, uh, you know, so, and BC was a good school too, you know, top 50 school. So academics was definitely superior. Um, so I chose, I chose BC. And so it was crazy. I mean, I, I, I went out there that summer, uh, during OT and all that, having never visited the campus, really only knowing about it from folks I had talked to within my school and then our college counselors that, you know, thought it was a great option. So cool. quick question there. If Brandon Roy had your knees, what does his NBA career look like? Uh, if Brandon Roy had his exact same body, but good knees like me, fortunately never had any knee uh, injuries. He's definitely a hall of famer. He's probably a, a 10 time all-star. Uh, he's arguably uh, an MVP. I mean, Kobe has some phenomenal years during that time period, yeah. but uh, people forget, man, Portland was the only team that really gave LA fits uh, during that period. I mean, they were just like the, it was a matchup thing, you know, Portland really gave him fits. So, um, I say at a minimum Hall of Fame, 10 time All Star, but you know, he had he had MVP caliber. You know, people people forget he only played, you know, five years in the league and really four healthy ones. 
So, you know, it was way, way too soon. Uh, but injuries sometimes happen. Yeah, Kobe said he was he was the toughest to guard in the Western Conference. I seen uh, an Meta, article with that. Yeah. yeah. Meta wore peace of the same thing. Yeah. You know, we got a clip where he's like, man, he's the toughest guard I've ever had. Uh, he was uh, tough. Yeah, yeah I saw that. Tough. I saw that. I want to go back to this conversation with your dad because I know as competitive as you are, you're one of the most competitive people I've ever been around. And if you – if like, we used to literally tell this dude, like, something he couldn't do. <laughs> He'll spend the rest of the season or the year, like, trying to, like, put something together, like, or put a workout plan together. Tell him he couldn't dunk, like, stuff like that. He'll figure out a way to – make that happen so when your dad told you that how did that go because i know how competitive you are so it's crazy man my i was so close with my dad and i had kind of a dual relationship with him because he was my dad but he's also my coach so i used to call him lou in the gym because he didn't really treat me like his son he actually treated me like another player actually worse than another player in some ways <laughs> better because he was harder on me but uh when he first when he was first talking to me in my mind i'm thinking he's trying to motivate me like he is, he doesn't think I'm working hard enough or he thinks I'm complacent. So we had just won state title. So we we're coming off that high. Uh, we had just, you know, done well at national. So I was coming off that high. So it's like, that's that entire year, 2000, I was like riding high. Like this is the way life's supposed to be, you know? Um, but it wasn't a short conversation. I mean, it was like a 30 minute conversation and he came back to it like a week later and I just, it really sunk in, you know? And he just started showing me like, real life comparisons like i mean you, you know you guys know these guys but like aaron brooks came out of seattle right and aaron was shorter than me but you know could do all the windmill between his legs all that stuff and he was like tavio you can barely grab the rim like he was just like giving me reasons he was like listen there's a like, there's a ceiling for everyone he was like and you're gonna have a ceiling he's like and your ceiling is gonna be college he's like it doesn't mean basketball is not gonna take you far you know but he just started giving me examples you know about you know, players that were like me, right? Um, players that he thought had my upside. Um, and all those players were pretty much, you know, good college players, <laughs> uh, you know? So, um, yeah, it was hard, you know, but it, what it helped me do was start to understand what a plan B would look like. Because I'll tell you, up until my going into my senior year, I still didn't fully buy into what he was saying. Like, it was really my senior year, once you start getting the action, everyone gets letters, right? Like, you get letters from everywhere, right? But like, once it started really getting down to like the scholarship offers, and to be honest with you, once I started playing against guys, where I was like, they like, cause I, my thing was defense and like, growing up because of the way I was taught, because of, you know, the, the amount of time I put in physically, I was always kind of able to hang with people defensively. Um, but I started to see the gap widen between players that I consider my peers. Um, and that was just when I started to kind of lock in on a plan B and say, all right, like, I still want to go after this. I'm still going to work my ass off, but you know, it's probably, you know, the league's probably not going to happen for me. Um, I know we spoke of your dad, Lou, a little bit. Um, Definitely was around our program when we were coming up and um, part of a lot of wisdom on a lot of us. Obviously, I know the type of man he raised you to be, but talk about his contribution just to Seattle in general. A lot of the kids that obviously weren't his sons, but treated them as such and put them in situations where they could be successful. 
Uh, give us a little bit of background for people who may not know how important he was to Seattle basketball. Yeah, I mean, uh, so Seattle is considered like a basketball hub now. But what people don't know is in like the 80s and like early, early 90s, there wasn't a lot of basketball coming out of the inner city in Seattle. Right. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Ed Peppel who ran in uh, like a select AU program over on the east side of Seattle, which is like the more affluent area of of kind of the greater Seattle area. And there were never a lot of blacks that were part of that program. There'd be like one or two, but it was mostly east side kids, mostly wealthy kids. There weren't a lot of opportunities for inner city kids, especially inner city black kids. And so early on, like late 80s, early 90s, my dad started trying to create opportunities uh, for inner city kids. And he was pretty successful at that. You know, there was a program called CAY that was early 90s and was kind of the hub for inner city uh, kids playing basketball. But even them, like, it was hard because they were doing a ton of things, trying to fundraise and keep money in the community. Um, you know, so, you know, he, he always had this vision of just creating more opportunities for kids in our community, not just for basketball, but using it as a vehicle. And that translated to a ton of, you know, success for not just kids, but the programs he helped start. I mean, people don't know this, but he was actually the first dude to bring uh, quote unquote Nike money into Seattle. Uh, he had a team in 90, um, he had a team in 97 or 98 that George Raveling helped sponsor uh, at Nike. Uh, players, Eric Vaughn was on that team. Josh, uh, Josh Williams, God rest his soul, passed away, was on that team. Uh, you know, yeah, a lot of Hoopers on that team. And that was the first time Nike had like really come into Seattle like that on a U level, grassroots level. Um, you know, George Riley connected with him on that. Um, and then he, you know, people don't realize, you know, Friend of Hoop is like a very well-known Seattle program now, but my dad coached the very first Friend of Hoop team with Douglas Wren and Jason King and Kevin Burleson, who's an NBA coach now. Uh, my dad coached that first team. So he was always kind of intertwined uh, in a lot of what was going on in the inner city of Seattle. Uh, obviously he coached Franklin High School uh, where guys like Jason Terry came out of. So he was, he was always a part of what was going on, trying to build the environment for, you know, kids of color, especially in the inner city uh, to play basketball and to have opportunities. So he meant a lot to a lot of people. I mean, at his funeral, there were, you know, a ton of people there and, you know, everyone that spoke was in tears and, you know, it was all, you know, men like me and, and you guys now that just were influenced by the mentorship and the father, father figure he was to all of them. You know, uh, he meant a lot, you know, and I just think his, his ability to build people up and provide confidence and, you know, your ability to do whatever you needed to do in life <laughs> uh, was apparent in the success of so many of his mentees have had. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just remember him having talks with him on the side and he just like, Hey man, you gotta make sure you develop that jumper. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> it only took like 12 years after that. Yeah. <laughs> I finally got it though. <laughs> but man, he was he was a really good and kind man. And he was always generous, man. And he, and he always had something really positive to say. And and that shit went it went a long way with me, bro. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Time for love for that. Yeah, definitely. And we spent a lot of time together and when he would come visit. So yeah. I mean I used to talk to him a lot and he See, talk about the point guard spot. Talk about Jason Terry. We actually went to see the Hawks play. Yep. Yeah, when they came to town uh, before. 
Um, but I'm going to put you on the spot really quick. Uh, oh. Your Seattle guys may be watching this. Okay. You're going down to L.A. Yeah. Tough game. You can only take one Seattle guy with you. Okay. Who you take in their prime? You got you got a in their prime, like as best as you've ever seen them. Like I know we got this dude. I'm I, I like my odds. We winning some. Yeah, the best the best so, you ever seen. So it's crazy, and I'm gonna have to qualify this because I'm gonna go with just Seattle guys. And when I say just Seattle guys, I'm automatically eliminating uh, <laughs> certain guys like you know uh, one guy. You know Michael Porter is probably the best guy I've seen play in Seattle at the high school level. So I'm going to eliminate him because he's not really from Seattle. He came there for a year, right? So I'm going to eliminate him, but I, I got to say, he was the best high school basketball player I've ever seen in my life, uh, like bar none. Um, so I'm going to eliminate him, and I'm going to say in their prime. Now we're talking about in their prime high school, college, or NBA. You got to win a game in L.A., bro. <laughs> you got to win. So – I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna say in their prime, like at the height of their them playing. I'm gonna say Brandon Roy, no question. If it is a high school game, so if I'm going for who is the player I'm taking to win a high school game, to be honest with you, I'm probably going with Jamal Crawford. Uh, so, uh, but, so, but Jamal grew up in LA too a little bit. So then yeah, where he, this is true. He has uh, he definitely has LA roots. He definitely yeah. has LA roots. But I mean, those are the two I'm I'm going with. Yeah. Um, you know, I think Brandon obviously I think had the had the uh you know overall higher uh NBA career. Jamal had way more longevity. Uh, you know, but that's how but qualifying, man. But yeah, the, I mean I'm rocking with those two, you know. Yeah. And one of the things I want to talk about, um, just really quick, we can brush right through it, is a lot of these guys, the Seattle guys, when I talk to my friends and stuff like that, for whatever reason, they think these dudes are from New York. And it's the flair, it's the all that kind of stuff. Do you hear some of that? Like All the time. Are there similarities there? All the time, because it's, it's such a basketball culture. Like, you know, New York has such a basketball culture where it's like, Kids grow up just playing basketball. It's the same thing in Seattle. You know, I had somebody argue with me that Nate Robinson was from New York. I said he played for New York. <laughs> Seattle. I, I was like, I can guarantee you. But I, I have people argue with me about that stuff all the time. They don't think guys are from Seattle or they think they're from New York. Or they just think they're from somewhere else. They don't necessarily think they're from Seattle. Um, you know, I, I definitely think it's just a basketball culture, man. It's, it's – you know, it's second to none, really. You know, I think we support our professional football team and the Seahawks, but growing up, man, it's basketball. It's basketball everywhere in the city. Everyone plays, you know, it touches everything. You know, basketball players are rock stars. And at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter if you played in the college level. You know, you walk around Seattle and people pretty much know who you are because it's it's a small community. Like, Seattle's not big like a New York or like L.A. You know, Seattle's mm-hmm. a little over a million uh, people greater Seattle. So it's a smaller market. Everyone pretty much knows each other. Okay. Um, so that's, that's obviously your upbringing, the origin, like you said, back in Seattle. Now you're transitioning to college. You're getting, you're a long way away. You're all the way across the country on the East coast. Um, so talk about that experience. Uh, you know, you get to BC and how's campus life, how's the uh, athletics and all that kind of stuff. 
so I say when I first got there, man, it, it was cool. Like I, I loved everything about the summer, pretty much. I mean, it was a little restricted, but I loved the environment. I loved people I met, you guys. That was all cool. It was not cool when the winter hit. So I was not mm. ready for that. I was not ready for that winter. <laughs> okay. And I don't know if you guys remember, the first winter we were there, uh, Boston set a record for most snowfall. Mm. And the second winter we were there, I think it set the record at the time for coldest winter. Mm. And I remember them closing down schools because they said if kids were outside for like 20 minutes, they would catch frostbite. And this is before really cell phones were that popular. I remember going to the payphone, typing in my calling card and calling my parents like, this is crazy. Like, it's so cold out here. They're closing schools because people can't be outside. They might get <laughs> it was like, like, so that part was not ready for it all. Uh, that was tough. Um, but, you know, campus life was fine. I mean, I enjoyed it. You know, I just think it helped so much having the environment we had on the team. Like we had T-Bell. I mean, we had Yuka. You know, we had older guys that were just really good dudes that looked after us. Like I talked to other people about their experience going into college. And sometimes the upperclassmen are just straight haters, you know, and I think that can impact how you feel about the school and how you feel about your experience. Yeah. We didn't have that. <laughs> like we had real leaders, you know. Um, so, I mean, for me, it was great. I mean, obviously, you know, still close with T-Bell to this day, but like he didn't have to. I was a walk line. He had to take me and, you know, build a relationship with me and give me advice and do all that stuff. And he did it just to do it. He thought it was the right thing to do. So, I mean, I, I loved everything about BC. You know, if it wasn't for, you know, if not for, you know, personal uh, financial situations at the time, I probably would have stayed, you know, but it just didn't work out like that. But I love BC. Yeah. So talk about that transition to Sacred Heart. And um, obviously you got to emerge as a player. We already know Tabio the guy. So talk about, um, like I said, the life over there. And maybe what was a little different from Sacred Heart than BC. Uh it was like night and day. Okay. Uh, so like big conference basketball and small conference basketball is, I mean, uh, Burr, you get to see this as a coach, I'm sure, but it's, it was just night and day, you know. Um, you know, we just had so much more and got so many more benefits at BC. Um, so it was night and day uh, in terms of like pretty much everything we got. Uh, I also thought it was night and day in terms of the seriousness of the program. And I don't mean from a coaching standpoint, because I think Dave Bike and Latina and those guys were like real serious about the craft. But I mean, it took it took us, I mean, I'm not gonna name names, but there were some guys on that team my first year and some of my second year that just weren't really about, I mean, they were there to have a scholarship and be a student and have fun, but they didn't really care about basketball like that. And that was, you know how competitive I am, that was tough for me. So right. like my first year, I kind of found the dudes I thought were real about their craft. And I was like, yo, we gotta work. You know, shout out to uh, Jared Fry, who was all league two years in a row. Like I got with him, you know, the year I was sitting out, I was like, dude, like you could be MVP of this league and just start to work with him. Cause I, I could tell he was about his craft. Um, you know, Drew Schubert, there were others, but um, that transition was tough for me because it actually was interesting too, because I'll say this, like I pretty much think, and you guys can jump in and you agree or disagree. I think everyone, every person on our team in BC thought they were going to play professional basketball at some level. Like everyone, no one thought when I'm done, when I'm done with these four years, my basketball career is over. It wasn't like that. I definitely so, thought I was going to, so. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
but you know what I mean? Like everyone was working, not thinking that was the last stage. There were dudes that were just checked out. I mean, there was one dude, I, like, I'm not gonna say, say his name, but like, I think the year I sat out, we were like, don't quote me on you know, something crazy, like two and 21 or something like that. Like, or like three and like team, something crazy like that. And he used to laugh after every loss. And it was like, it was crazy. And he wasn't laughing because he thought it was funny, but he was just so checked out. He was like, yeah. man, I've been dealing with this shit for like years. You know, he was just checked out. So it was like, that was hard for me. Cause it was like, I'm a newcomer on the team. Plus like people already kind of don't like a new player coming into the team like that. So I was doing my best to just, you know, break down barriers, not try to be better than anybody, put in the work and build relationships. But the transition was tough from a basketball standpoint. From a campus standpoint, it wasn't at all. Like, um, you know, I don't know how you marry the two, but I think from a from a academic and campus standpoint, like I knew my dean, you know, I could just talk to the head of the department. Right. I was really into politics. So I, I got super, super into politics when I was there. They were accessible. It was just like, I, I, I felt like I could do way more on campus and way more was accessible on campus in terms of student life than when I was at uh, BC. Uh, I remember trying to make an appointment to talk to my uh, counselor at BC. I think it took me like two, three weeks. Uh, you know, you could just walk right in and take a car. So there were pluses and minuses both, but just by far was basketball. Um, but I think to this day, that's why I have such a good relationship with Coach Bike and, and Anthony Latina, because I remember going to Coach Bike's office. I'd been there maybe like a month and a half. And I was like, yo, I did not come here for this. <laughs> like, you know, and it wasn't even like me calling him out or anything like that. I was just like, we got to do more. Like, we didn't really have a weightlifting regiment. They would give guys these sheets in their locker room and people were just expected to go do it. There was just a bunch of stuff like that where it was like, coming from BC, where it was like weights at three, practice at 4.30, conditioning after, training. It was way different. You know? So, um, yeah, you know, it, it was an adjustment, but um, – I think uh, the opportunity I got there, like I'll never, I'll never forget. You know, like Coach Bike and Latina, those guys believed in me, and you know, uh, you know, helped help me uh, really grow and play for two year, two more years, uh, and have a great run. So, how was your first experience when you came back to BC to play against us? Oh man! So first of all, <laughs> it was hype. He plugged me too. All, Y'all don't remember, or maybe you do remember. Maybe you guys were just trying to troll me. But when you guys came out, I used to always be like, you know, when you guys came out, you guys still said that. And I was like, oh, they're coming at me, right? <laughs> now, I have no idea if that was just something that naturally happened or if it was talked about, but I heard it when you guys ran out the, ran out the tunnel. I don't know who was it that yelled. It was somebody yelled, like, you know? And I was like, hold on. Like, so I'll say this, Tom. We never stopped saying it. So we say it every game. Like, it was just a part yeah, of the, yeah. the tunnel. Like, it became a part, like, that was our thing. You, you say it, you smack the thing. Yep. Then we go out. And, it, yeah, then we spread out. So you was going to use that for motivation anyway. <laughs> hey, for real. Right. He was looking for something. Just to, just to hype him up. That's all that was. He was gonna turn anything into. Oh, they try to they try to diss me. And that's what's crazy because I, I didn't know. So like that, like the intensity level, like in my mind, like rose when that point came. 
And um, other than that, I mean, I, I love coming back. First of all, you got to see everybody. You got to say what's up to everybody. You were playing there. Um, you know, we were a long shot to win. I think we lost by like 15 or 20. But like, uh, I mean, I loved it. It was, it was a lot of fun, man. It was good to be back. Uh, you know, for me, it was never anything, you know, personal or anything. It was always fun. Um, I do think that, <laughs> I do think that, uh, you know, I remember every single play that we had. And I remember <laughs> it because I used to write down all of our plays in a book. Like, I still have this. It's not a booklet anymore. It's actually digital. But I have every single play I've ever seen and liked uh, throughout my basketball career in, like, a coaching booklet because I always thought I was going to use it one day when I coach. And so we were going over scout. Uh, I don't know who had the scout that day for our team, but they had a bunch of stuff wrong. And I didn't do <laughs> anything, like, during the, during the scout. I just went to them after in their office and was like, listen, like, a bunch of this stuff is wrong. Like, I know the calls. You know, I knew switch. I knew BC. I knew I knew all that stuff, right? So um, I sat down with uh, Latina at the time, and we just talked about how we were going to play against, you know, pretty much the three zone offenses that we knew you guys used consistently, and try to slow you guys down. You know, so like switch, for instance, that cutter to the weak side would always shift the defense, and so we talked about how we were going to start by not going through and then let the, let the shift happen and then start to go through with the cutter. So it looked like a zone, but it was more of a man. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think eventually you guys switched and went to BC where there's a double high screen. We would stay on the first one, switch the second one. So like, I still remember that stuff. So for me, that was fun too. Cause it was like all those years, or I guess two years, those times like sitting on the sideline studying everything that was going on, I got to put to use. Uh, but I, yeah. I mean, it was fun, man. I had a lot of fun. Uh, and it was good to be back, man. It was good to be back. You know, you turned into a player coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, no, that's dope, though. Like, especially, like, during, like, what was it, junior year? Junior, junior year, right? Yeah. That's pretty dope, bro. Yeah. We ain't know nothing about that, bro. And you out here on the board like, nah, we got to take all that off, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yo, honestly though, though, like that's that's why to this day I have so much love for Dave Bike. Like he was, I always call him he's like a leader of men because he was not a dude with an ego at all. Like he was coming to me after practice, like, yo, come to the office. And I'll go to the office. And he told me once, he was like, he's like, you're he's like, I've never had a player that argued with me so much behind closed doors and defended me into in, the team. I never said anything about him to the team, even though some of the stuff that happened was crazy. Like there was some stuff that would happen that would just be crazy. But it was because he was so old school. He was like real old school dude. Um, but I always defended him because it's like it doesn't do any good to be bitching about the coach. I don't know if I can swear. Sorry about that. Uh, but it's uh, that ship is sailed. Okay. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no. I mean, I, I credit you know Bike and Latina would even you know being open to that. I don't think we could have walked into Skinner's office and been like, "Yo, <laughs> we want to do something different." We might have had that conversation with like. Cooley or like Cohen or Duke, but like Skinner would have not been having that, right? <laughs> yeah. it, took, it took me to like senior year to be able to make a suggestion. Oh, sure. <laughs> but let me but let me tell you guys something. I'm not gonna lie, like I I when I was at BC, I did not appreciate how good Skinner was at making in-game adjustments. Mm -hmm. Like 
criticize him for whatever you want. This man made so many good in-game adjustments. And people don't – I mean, for me at least, that was the biggest thing I picked up was, like, this dude really understands the feel of the game. Because uh, I think he was really, really good at that, man. Like, even yeah. when I post high school, like, that's something I tried to continue to evolve uh, myself because you, pre- you, can all, you prepare all – you prepare all the stuff going to the going to the game, but when the game happens, it's like – 70, 80% of what happens is unplanned. You right. gotta do things on the fly. And yep. I appreciated that about Skinner. Uh, that and the fact that uh, good or bad, like he was big on the best players taking the most shots. And mm-hmm. like, that's a philosophy that my dad always had in a different way. Seeing how Skinner did that, I thought was, um, I thought was interesting and valuable because he didn't tell guys not to shoot. He just put guys in situations where they couldn't shoot. too much. Like, I don't think he ever told guys not to shoot. Like, I don't think I ever heard him tell somebody not to shoot. But he would just put people in positions where, like, they weren't going to shoot, you know? I'll, I'll tell you right now, playing lunchtime basketball with him, he used to tell me to shoot all the time. Shoot it! Shoot it! Yeah, <laughs> man. We gotta, hopefully, hopefully we can get Coach Skinner on one day. Oh, you got to get Skinner on, man. Yeah. I want to see, see that episode. <laughs> yeah. There's so many questions I have for Skinner. We're going to set up like a group episode for Coach Skinner. All the ammo we can get. For real. Oh, man. We're going to bring A.B. on, too. We're going to bring A.B. A.B., A.B. Bring <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because you could say something similar I know you said the best player gets the shots, but Yuka was like my main thing and coming like, you know, that he really respected was like, if I work hard, like I'll get a shot. Yep. And like he was like, that's all I really wanted. And and that was the fair part about Coach Skinner. Like he pretty much didn't play favorites. If you came in, you you play hard, you, you can get an opportunity to help the team. And he was a straight shooter. Like mm-hmm. that was that was the best advice T Bell ever gave me. T Bell was like, man. He's like, Tavio, if you have a question and you're getting the runaround about whatever it is, he's like, go talk to Skinner. He's like, it may take you a little while to get to him, but, like, go talk to him. Like, he'll tell you exactly what it is. And Skinner did. Like, Skinner always shot it straight. I'll probably talk to him three, four times, but I remember those conversations because he he was, like, there. He shot it straight. That is true. He is straight. All right. Ch- changing changing uh, subjects really quick. Just you being at – um. You have a different perspective than I think we do on this because you had a chance to compare two um, universities, predominantly white institutions. How was it, you know, at BC, you know, as a minority and then at Sacred Heart? And is there things that you say is just universal no matter where you go? Um, because obviously the only, only thing we can draw from is our experience at BC. Um, so, yeah, it was very different, actually. Um, and so Sacred Heart was actually very conservative. Uh, both politically and socially, like very conservative. Um, and I think mostly because of where they draw their students from. Um, Boston College was very, was much more liberal and I'd say much more um, integrated. <laughs> uh, at, Sac- at Sacred Heart, and I've heard it's gotten better, I definitely felt, uh, I definitely felt different about the way in which um, I was treated as a black person on campus. Uh, I didn't always feel like that at BC. I felt sometimes I was treated differently as an athlete, sometimes better actually. Um, but like, I never I never felt to the extent I felt at Sacred Heart. 
Now, there were some bad experiences when we were freshmen. I was rocking with Peter uh, Alvarez and some other folks and, you know, a student, you know, called somebody in our group with the N-word and, you know, that didn't go over well. Um, so, like, some of that stuff, like, happened, but it wasn't, it definitely wasn't to the extent, I would say, both the naivete and the overt uh, racism that I experienced in my and I, and I don't think that was a function of the kids having anything other than not being exposed to people of color. Um, in some cases, I think it was worse, but a lot of times I think it was because they weren't exposed to people of color. Like, I can't tell you how many kids I talked to. So I roomed my first year with uh, 12 wrestlers. Uh, I was the only black kid, 12 wrestlers in the room. And like some of those dudes I'm still cool with to this day. But like a bunch of them had like never really even had a serious conversation with a black person. So like that was for me different coming from Seattle, which is one, just, you know, much more integrated. Two, I went to all white schools pretty much my whole life. Right. Um, so like that experience of being a black person on white campus was not new. What was new for me was being around white people that had never been around black people. <laughs> gotcha. That was new. Wow. Yeah, I never I never even thought about that. Um, and it's, it's funny through all these conversations, different topics and, and different people's experiences are coming up that are all unique to you. Right. Everything's unique to your situation. And, you know, we all grow up, we go to different schools and things like that. I, I never thought about, man, being exposed to a group of white kids who never like I'm, I'm like the guinea pig. I'm the test dummy here. Exactly. And that's what I felt. It always felt like I was a spokesperson for every black person. I'm like, man, I'm one person. Like, this dude over here might feel different than I feel. You know, I can tell you <laughs> my experience, but you know, I'm, I can't be the spokesperson for everyone. You know. Yeah. It's funny. I don't know if you remember this. It wasn't. I won't say it's a speech, but it was in OTE. We talked. OTE brought a lot of memories to this podcast. But um, you 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 gave a speech about people being able to empathize or sympathize and the difference between the two. I don't know if you remember that. I remember like it was yesterday. Yeah, but as, as a kid who, obviously I'm straight out of high school at this point, like we had, the fall isn't even here yet. It's summer school prior to actually enrolling in the fall. Um, coming from a public school, you know, all that kind of stuff. To hear you articulate that, like that really stuck with me. And obviously what you came in 2002, that was 18 years ago. And it still sticks with me. I remember you talking about that in front of the entire group of people. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know if you remember what sparked that conversation was. Uh, I forget her name, but there was a one girl in our class who, somewhere in her heritage, had uh, Latin roots. So she says, uh, but she, for all intents and purposes, looked white, and so she got questioned about it. Like, did you just check the let's Latin box or do you identify and is this really in your roots? And she wouldn't give a straight answer. And that's what sparked that entire conversation because she basically was playing the victim, like because she was the only white girl in the entire class, um, she was playing the victim. And it was like, hold on, like <laughs> we live in this community exists, right? And so, um, yeah, I remember that like it was yesterday. And I remember also thinking like, it's crazy that even something like OTE that was definitely meant to give more opportunities for people of color, like can be uh, infiltrated 
you know, and again, maybe she did have roots, but she just didn't want to claim it or she was nervous or being bombarded. I don't know. I was never really cool with her like that. But the way she answered it, I forget what the professor's name was. Uh, what was his name? Um, ah, I can't remember. I can't, I can't remember. Was it the big dude? Yeah, big dude. Yeah. The big dude. Yeah, I forgot his name. Uh, but that's what sparked that conversation, you know, because for me, it was just it was crazy that, you know, she was playing the victim. I'm like, as soon as OT is over, you're going to be on a campus, you know, with mostly people that look like you. <laughs> like, you think, you know, six weeks or 10 weeks, however long it was, you know, you think that, you know, so anyways. Yeah. You have any favorite hung lamb memories from OT? <laughs> hung lamb. Uh, hung was that dude, man. I loved hung because, uh, so he brought us to like his neighborhood multiple times. And, um, I just remember thinking like, I think a couple of things. The first thing I remember thinking about hung was like, this is why in my opinion, like college and university is like so important. Cause I had never in my, in my personal experience, I had never been around folks that had immigrants as parents. Right. So like seeing that experience of not just the way he interacted with his mother, but he also helped take care of his grandmother. Yeah, and so I personally grew up with my grandparents in my household as well. So like that for me was like, damn, like we can be completely separate coasts, go end up at the same school, completely separate ethnicities, backgrounds, but like still have these very similar life experiences, um, you know, this kind of blew me away. Uh, but no, nah, I mean, I got a lot of love for Hung. I actually haven't talked to him in a while. Uh, but um, yeah, Hung, Hung was that dude, man. I, I really, I mean, I, I obviously was close to him at the time, but I, I really vibe with him. We went and hooped and we went and what, we went to a party? Yeah, went to a party. Yeah. <laughs> Everything <laughs> ends with a party if you go on somewhere. <laughs> it's always going to end in a party. So. So we went to a party and the party was at uh, a kid's house um, and his girlfriend at the time, I want to say bought him like a PS2 or something like that. She bought him something like a really nice gift. I don't know what it was. But I remember me, I was like, damn, like, you know, like whatever it was in my mind, I'm like, damn. Uh, and um, we went to the party and I remember, uh, like multiple times having to tell people I was with Hung. I was like, no, I'm with Hung. And they're like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> um, but no, nah, I mean, I, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, I even, I, I've been with Hung as recently, I think it was a couple of years ago. Uh, same old dude. I mean, obviously last year I saw him, I went when he first opened it, he has a playa bowl shop right across the street from DC. Like, uh, we used to Check be out there. Like, say that again? Check it out, I said, right across the yeah. street where Comic Sub used to be. It's free promo. We might even put it put a sponsorship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give him a plug. And he got a great spot right across the train tracks when we used to catch the T. Of course. That's that's what he's at. Great spot. That's what's Um, but then like you said, these relationships we built. I mean, I went to his house, my wife and I, for uh Fourth of July cookout he had. And you know, now my wife gets to experience this because she's not she she didn't go to a school like BC, so um she get a chance to meet friends outside of people she's used to and again hung's just gonna be hung like he always in a party we ended up on a boat that boat where craig it went really bad for us that night um well more bad for you than me but yeah hung won't let he won't stop like he just 
So up there again. I had like deja vu. Yeah. After we beat, uh, what was it? I think after we beat Syracuse, I think our junior year. Uh, after that game, I went hung was in the mods and some other people and they're like, come to the mods, it's party. We won the game, like whatever. I walk in the mod. I'm in there for like one second. All of a sudden, like whap. Like, Hung gave me, like, a celebratory, like, slap to the head. I think he, like, almost gave me a concussion. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's Hung. <laughs> That's what happens. Yeah. Yeah, Hung carried me out one time of a bar. Was that you? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was Ryan and Hung carried me out senior year. Tavio, I missed two weeks. I was in the infirmary. Oh, wow. No, no, no. I didn't know. I, I'm, I was not with you at the bar. I saw the picture the next morning of you, like, splayed Laid out. out. Oh my God! I was a rat. I, I would have tried to, I would have tried to stop you earlier, before it got to that point. And then Coach Skinner goes, "So you went out last night?" <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Yeah, I don't feel good. I gotta go to the doctor ASAP. I'm hurting. Let me, let me get the IV. For real. <laughs> get the IV. Top. I was in the, I was in the hospital for two weeks. I missed one game. It was that all infir- bad. Was that all infirmary bad. got some stories, man. For real. For real. So, yeah, Tom, uh, I want to lead up to it. Obviously, you know, if anybody's following you now, we see you very active with the social injustice. You're out in the streets. You're, you know, you're trying to get things done. Um, but, you know, before we even get there, let's talk about everything leading up to it. You, you leave college. You get into your next field of work. And then how all that leads up into where we are today. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so right out of college, so I did five years, two years at BC, three years at Sacred Heart. Right out of college, I got a job pretty much right away with a sports agency. Uh, shout out to Bob Myers. I was working for Bob Myers at Wasserman at the time. Um, and so Bob gave me a job. Um, you know, a lot of that was relationships. I was super cool with Brandon Roy. Martel Webster was a client there as well. And they both played for the Portland Trailblazers. And they were both on their first contracts. And anyone that knows anything about the NBA business, agents don't really make a lot of money in the first contract. They're always trying to get guys to the second contract. So they basically put me in Portland to babysit. I shouldn't say babysit because they're both grown men and they didn't really need a lot of babysitting. But they put me in Portland basically to keep everyone away from their guys while they were on their first contract. So I was in Portland, mostly working with Brandon and Martell. Uh, they still had uh, shoe deals at the time. Martell's with Adidas, Brandon was with Nike, Brandon had Muscle Milk, uh, Brandon had a couple other Sparks, some other stuff. Um, basically to make sure that they got where they needed to go. I mean, it was, you know, entry level stuff. Um, and so I did that for a little under a year. And probably about six months in, I knew it probably wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, for a lot of reasons, but it probably wasn't what I wanted to do. And I thought I was working for one of the best, not the best in the business, Bob because of his moral compass. Like Bob is one of the most morally sound guys I've ever met. And he was in the sports agency business, which is like, yeah. it's like an oxymoron, right? But he definitely held principles to um, how he did his business. And I respected that. Like I still got an immense amount of respect for Bob and the way he ran his business. Um, and so I, Decided I was going to leave the sports AC. Wasn't really sure what I was going to do. Uh, when I decided I was going to leave, I actually remember first, the first person I told my sister, 
And I told my mother, my mother actually cried because she didn't think it was a good idea to leave my job. And I was actually making pretty good money. Um, she just thought it was crazy, you know? And she was just like, you know, what are you gonna do? You know, <laughs> and I didn't really know, to be honest with you. Um, but for me, it was like, you know, I spent, you know, five years in college. I felt like I had a good foundation. I didn't want to waste years doing something that I wasn't super passionate about. You know, you talk about a competitive fire, but the, the passion for me is, I mean, those kind of go hand in hand. And so I kind of on a whim was like, I want to do something that, you know, I'm passionate about that I enjoy. And so decided to get into outside sales. I got into outside sales doing merchant service processing, which is like super dry, but it was super flexible. And that allowed me to ultimately do what my passion was, which was, um, build a community-based organization. And so went back to Seattle, started a community-based organization called A+, which was education, mentoring, and sports, kids fourth grade through high school. It was really aligned with, you know, we talked to my dad earlier, everything my dad was about. You know, he ran an organization called YES, Youth Education and Sports, when I was growing up. And he had the model. Uh, he just didn't, one, have the resources, and two, I don't think quite, um, leaned into the education and mentoring on a structural level the way we wanted to do. So we tried to systematize it, uh, you know, and so we built that up. I ran that, ended up getting a head high school coaching job as well. So I coached um, at Lakeside High School. Uh, crazy story, I actually applied and was offered the Garfield High School coaching job, which is arguably the most uh, recognizable and high profile high school basketball coaching job in the state, arguably. I would say it's definitely top three. I don't think anybody would argue it's top three. They have more state championships than any other high school in the state. I applied for that and was offered the job. They rescinded the offer two days later. So like it was in the paper, Tavio Hobson gets this job. I'm on a high, I'm calling people trying to build my staff. They rescinded the offer two days later. I'll give you the behind the scenes because I've never told this publicly. So Brandon Roy was on the hiring committee. That's my dude, right? Uh, and Brandon, you know, basically was like, we need to do better. Garfield hadn't won a state title in forever. Um, he's like, we need to do better at the school. Like, we just need better. I don't remember who the coaches were before, but wasn't a lot of success. And so um, he was on the hiring committee. I wasn't in the room where they were making the decision, but Somehow, some way, they ended up deciding on me. I had zero high school experience. I coached AU basketball for 10 years. My dad was obviously the GOAT, so I had that pedigree, but I had coached high school. They gave me the job. Um, then, after I got the job, so I get the job, <laughs> there was uh, basically two parents of two kids that did not want me to get the job. And one of them was a very high profile kid at the time. Um, and they went to the principal and were like, we don't, we don't think Tabio's right for the job. And uh, the principal caved and called me in and basically was like, I don't think it's a good look for you to take this job because I think it'll be bad for you. So he was kind of trying to look out, but I was also like, I'm not worried about that. Like I can build that bridge. Like I built bridges like that before. Mm -hmm. Like I want the job, you know, it's like, uh, you know, when you're going into a high profile job like that and you have the talent, I mean, you would have, in my opinion, I don't think there's anybody who wouldn't want to say title. Um, I wanted the job, but, and I was ambitious too. Um, and I knew I had my, I, my dad, I had people that were around me that I felt like if things really get crazy, they can help guide me. Anyways, they rescinded the offer. So 
I'm a little down, but I'm like, okay, what am I going to do next? You know, I still wanted to get same involved in coaching. And then when the Lakeside opportunity popped up, Lakeside was literally the worst school. Like they, I think had won like one or two league games a year before, never won a state title. I mean, they were terrible. And so I was like, all right, you know, basically people don't think I can coach. So let me go to the worst possible school and see what we can do there. And, you know, five years later, we, you know, one district title, second in Metro, second in state, school record for wins. We built that up. Um, and that was ultimately like a large part of my motivation was just, um, I wanted to go to a place where uh, I could kind of, you know, uh, you know, get my stripes, you know, and be in a place where I felt like, you know, it was undoubtedly a place that needed to have the type of infrastructure and uh, program building that already existed at Garfield. Like Garfield is a institutional power and arguably will be one of the top two or three favorites to win state title every year. Um, you know, like I was just the polar opposite in a lot of ways. So um, ended up doing that, was at Lakeside, ran a plus for six years, was at Lakeside for five and a half years, um, ended up leaving Lakeside, WIA, which is like the body that runs uh, uh, Washington State basketball said that I could not run a youth program and be a high school coach. So it was a conflict of interest. So I said, you gotta choose one. You gotta choose high school coach, you gotta choose a youth program. And so at that point, um, I basically made the decision that I was gonna go to the youth program. And ironically, it was right around the time when the whole Donald Sterling thing was happening. So the whole Donald Sterling thing happened, uh, you know, Steve Ballmer ends up buying the team after he buys the team, you know, he was a mentor of mine and friend. And um, I ended up getting an opportunity to come down to LA and work for the Clippers. Uh, and so for me, it was like crazy, just one idea of leaving Seattle. Uh, Cause I thought I'd be in Seattle for a long time, but you know, a couple of my mentors convinced me of the opportunities that existed. And because I felt really established where I was at, and I felt like I always had the Seattle connection, the network, and I felt really good about where I was at from a professional standpoint, business-wise, like I had real estate. I mean, I just felt in a really good space. I wanted to make the leap and kind of get outside my comfort zone. If I was going to do it, I was like, now nah, I need to do it. Because eventually I'm going to want to settle down, have family, do some of these things. If I'm going to make this leap, let me go do it now. Uh, so to kind of wrap that up. Can I ask you something there? So yeah, you mentioned kind of casually, oh, yeah, Steve Ballmer is a mentor, you know, one of the – what, 10 richest people in the world, maybe somewhere in there. Um, so he obviously, Microsoft, he has a background in, in Seattle. So I, I, I'd love to hear more about that. And I also, I'm pretty sure he was either a basketball or football manager at Harvard. So yeah, uh, got to respect that. Um, For all the great you next up? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. But <laughs> uh, yeah, would love to hear kind of how that relationship came about. Yeah, so Steve's a huge basketball fan, like huge basketball fan. Um, like the stuff you see on TV, like that's authentic. Like he's a huge basketball fan. Like he loves, loves basketball. Um, and so, you know, him owning a team and I guess being a chairman of a team, he has like called himself an owner. Being the chairman of a team uh, was, an, I think, a natural fit. And I think he probably is the best uh, leader, uh, you know, out there just because of his, his passion for what he does that helps benefits people of color too. We can talk about that later or not. But in terms of how we met, so my ba my dad was like a, you know, people call him the godfather of Seattle basketball. He was just a huge figure in Seattle basketball. 
And so Steve had, uh, Steve has three sons. And when his sons were like in middle school, one I think may have been like eighth grade, um, a mutual friend of my dad's and Steve's asked my dad to help get involved with like doing some trainings and doing some other things of Steve Ballmer's kids. At the time, to be honest with you, I didn't know who Steve Ballmer was. So like, I mean, I just didn't know who he was. And um, so the mutual friend asked my dad, well, my dad at that point was like semi-retired. He had about cancer. He wasn't doing any on the court stuff. He was like totally concierge mentor, you know, helping coaches coach. He was not doing any on the court stuff. And so he basically passed it on to me and was like, you know, I'm not really interested, but you know, my son Tavio, you know, might be interested. And that's really how the relationship started. It started, I was training his kids, uh, you know, and trained his kids for a number of years, not individually, mostly it was a lot of group sessions, but trained his kids, built the relationship some, through that. And then where the relationship really blossomed was uh, through the organization I ran. You know, I, uh, <laughs> I was, so I always say about entrepreneurs, part of the beauty of entrepreneurship is they don't know what they don't know, so they have no fear. Like I was pretty fearless and did not uh, in any way have any apprehensions about approaching Steve about getting involved with the organization I was running. And so I approached him and basically asked him to get involved, uh, mostly by, I was like, hey, we'd love to have your support. You know, you're pretty well off. Maybe you can help by giving us a donation. Uh, and initially it didn't actually go the way I hoped. <laughs> he did actually say yes. Uh, it took me a few months uh, and so a bunch of work, uh, that's a much longer story. Um, but he was impressed with the work I had done. And then eventually he was like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll get involved. Um, and then from there, I just kind of ran with it. Like once he got involved and agreed to, you know, provide a donation, I really worked to make sure that the organization could be sustainable as best as possible. So, um, but that's how the relationship built. And I think he liked the things that I had done, not just with the organization, but the way I worked, we used to meet the time at least every you know two maybe three months uh and in my mind i felt like i was getting an mba because he was providing such valuable feedback on pretty much everything we were doing right so that's really where i learned how to i think run business and i learned a lot about business i, I got my master's from georgetown but i learned far more i'll say from conversations with guys like him another guy robbie bach i mean there were a lot of dudes rich Patton. there were a lot of dudes in seattle um that just helped mentor me on business. And that's really why I felt like I, I got my business acumen from much more so than school. Uh, but that's how the relationship built and developed. And then uh, if you remember, we were trying to get the Sonics to come back to Seattle. And at the time, Steve was still CEO of Microsoft. So because he was CEO of Microsoft, even though he was the vast majority of uh, the investment to bring the team back, Chris Hansen was running the entire thing. Chris Hansen was running all the community initiatives. He was doing all the lobbying. Chris Hansen was doing everything. And um, because I, like a lot of Seattle fans, you know, miss basketball in Seattle, like I, you know, ended up getting involved. And they asked me to do a lot in terms of community organizing. And so I worked really closely uh, with both Steve and Chris on trying to bring the Sonics back. Chris was basically running everything, but Steve was behind the scenes because he, you know, he had a full-time job. He had to run Microsoft, uh, and it was ultimately unsuccessful uh, to wait to win. And then Steve went and obviously bought the Clippers on his own. Uh, but that helped, you know, really 
you know, build a relationship as well. So I'd say a combination of me coaching the kids, I coach this kid at Lakeside and then working with them, it, you know, I just, there were all these kind of uh, avenues to get exposure. And I think, you know, guys like him that have run companies of a hundred thousand people, I think what they try to do is recognize and develop talent. And ultimately that's what I feel like he did in me. And he gave me, he gave me opportunities. Uh, opportunity Clippers was like an amazing one, you know? So I, I made it my, you know, I made it my ultimate goal to make sure that I, you know, uh, exceeded expectations. And I like to think I did. You did, because people still talk about you today, bro. You know, I still do certain dinners, you know what I'm saying? Being that type of ambassador, your name gets brought up a lot, bro. So I just want you to know that you've done a really, that, really good job. Done really good. That, yeah, yeah. The first, the first, uh, year I was there, it was like, I was just so locked in, you know, I was fortunate. I signed at the time, the largest deal in Clipper history, uh, largest corporate partnership deal in Clipper history. And I remember when I was talking to my pops, talking about kind of relationship again, my dad just told me, he was like, listen, man, like when you go down there, there's going to be a lot of distractions, there's going to be this, there's going to be that. And all that existed. He was like, you need to be locked in. And back to sports. I mean, I was, I mean, but sports does that for you. Like when you, if you can be locked in on sports, on a college campus or in high school, anything, you can do that in business. So that's good to hear, uh, Craig, and I, I appreciate that, man. I, I still love you, bro. I love you, bro. It's I love it's you too, bro. Dope, bro, it's dope, bro. Because it's like every time I I get out there, I have a conversation and be like, "You went to school with Tavio? <laughs> you went to school with Tavio? Like yeah. I went to school with Tavio." So yeah. it's like it's it's just dope, man, to see all the work you put in and like certain those dinners. They say it's because of you, bro. Straight up, yeah. straight up. One thing that um, is interesting to me, I don't know if you can speak on it, I don't know if there's any correlation at all, but about 10 years ago, I heard an idea for something that was similar to the junior NBA. And now I'm seeing the junior NBA. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's any correlation there, but want to speak on it? Uh, yeah, uh, so there's not any direct correlation that I know of, right? Um, but to your point, Bird, like, we were way, 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 you know, ahead of the curve, you know. Um, so, I mean, I, I can't say that it, say anything was ripped off. I think one of the best things that the NBA did, so USA Basketball, if you read, like, all their materials, all their website, everything that they do, from a youth level, they're trying to really focus on youth development as opposed to just basketball development, right? But like a large part of why the NBA is such a global game is they get kids to play. It's like give a kid some shoes and a jersey and like let them play and they will be fans for life. Right. So it becomes that vehicle. And uh, I think the NBA, especially under David Stern, had this idea that, you know, we may not be football in the United States. We may not be America's game like baseball, but we can be a global game much more so than any other league because of you know the ability for our athletes to transcend you know culture and all those other things um and i think the junior nba idea in my mind was always something that was a natural it it just should have been done i think a long time the fact that it's being done now is great i think there's still a ton more depth that needs to go to it um but yeah i mean i i you know nothing that i know of at least to your point bird okay um so let's get into it. Uh, if, like I said, if you've been following Tavio as of late, he's very, like he already said, he's a very passionate guy, um, very competitive, and he's turned that passion into 
social activism social and, and turning that energy um, into social injustices. Um, what got you into it is, and um, just tell us some of the things that you're work, working on and um, yeah, take it away. Yes, yeah, so I'll start by saying, um, specifically when it comes to police brutality, uh, that's a conversation that I remember to this day my father having with me. So my dad coached a guy by the name of Demetrius DeBose. He was an O'Day high school graduate where my dad went coached high school basketball. He went on to Notre Dame and then played in the NFL. He was killed by the police. Killed by the police, even though he was unarmed. And Demetrius, for me growing up, was like the dude I looked up to, right? Because I was like three, four, five, six when he was playing in high school. So I looked at him as like one of those dudes, like him, Ray Hall, some other guys that played for my dad, like I looked up to them. So when he got killed, like I remember my dad like having that conversation with me about police, having the conversation with me. And I could have been more, I was definitely middle school or younger. And I remember thinking like, that's, first of all, that's crazy that they killed him. But also like, I gotta be careful. Like any, you know, having the conversation about, you know, always giving instructions to the cops before you reach for anything. Like I'm going to get ready to take my hand off the steering wheel and reach into this middle compartment to grab my wallet. Is that okay? Like, which sounds crazy, right? Um, I remember, so he had a conversation with me when I was very young. As I've gotten older, you actually get to experience it. Like, I remember getting pulled over. I hadn't had my license more than like two or three months. Got pulled over, uh, got taken out of the car, got my hands put on the police car, which is hot as hell at the time. And like, at the time, I was so shook. I was scared to actually tell, I told my dad, I was scared to tell my mom because I was scared she wasn't gonna let me drive anymore. So I didn't even tell my mom. So I was like, ah, she gonna think I did something wrong. I did nothing wrong. Like I have no criminal record. I've never, like nothing, but like, you know, they were messing with me, you know? Um, and then I also remember probably like, it was definitely in high school as well, getting pulled over with one of my good friends who's white and, you know, we get pulled over and he's like, yo, why are they pulling us over? And I'm just like, yo, chill. Like that's literally, I was like, yo, chill. And so the cop comes up to the window, hell officer, license registration. And my friend's like, why are we pulled over? And I was like, and I was like, yo, ch like chill, right? <laughs> he just didn't get it, right? He just like did not get it. And so he was like super upset, like, you know, like this is bullshit. Like, <laughs> like yo, like chill, dude, you know? But um, those are just, I mean, I've had many more terrible experiences, unfortunately, with police. Luckily I'm alive. I do think I have a certain amount of privilege because of, you know, relationships and things I can throw out to try to disarm cops and those things. So I think that's a sad part about the situation in our country when it comes to police brutality and when it comes to the way police treat black and brown people, especially men in our country. So for me, the issue itself, I personally am keenly aware of and have personal experience with. So I feel like something has always needed to be done. The level of awareness has risen to the point where I couldn't personally feel comfortable sitting back and not doing everything I can. I'm extremely blessed. I feel like I have a lot in my life that, you know, I thank God that I have, that I'm fortunate to do, that um, many others don't have. I could not look myself in the mirror. My, my dad always had this mirror test. Like he was like, Tavio, people are gonna criticize you. You know, you made it when you got haters, all those things. He's like, but if you can look yourself in the mirror every night and feel like you did your best, 
that you know you did everything you could, that's all that matters. And so for me, I couldn't look myself in the mirror if I didn't feel like I used every single thing I had, my platform, my resources, my connections, everything to try to bring change at a time when it seems so realistic for us to really push this over the hump, right? Like I really feel like this time is different. And so for me, I haven't let up. Like I put it into my calendar and put it into my schedule time where I'm just dedicated, solely focused on dedicated on information gathering, further lobbying, fundraising, and then trying my best, you know, to, to, to provide change. So I think anyone that, you know, witnessed the, the not witnessed, but saw the, um, George Floyd video, you know, has to be heartbroken. But, you know, I saw the Eliza McClain video earlier this week and it, uh, it brought me to tears. You know, I cry when I watched it. Uh, I clipped out the entire audio, cried the whole time I clipped it out, uh, posted it and typed out the entire transcript, cried that whole time and then proceeded to like fire off probably a dozen different texts and emails to people like, yo, like, what can we do? Who knows somebody in Colorado? Like, what can we do? Because I think what happens around these issues is there's like this media attention and everyone thinks, oh my God, it's an issue. And then all the politicians feel like they have to do is weather the storm. It's like, if we can just weather the storm, this will go away. It's on us to say, no, 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 this isn't a storm. This is a movement. It has to change. So for me, it's like I, again, I could look myself in the mirror every night if I didn't feel like I was doing everything I could um, to, to bring about change. And I mean, there's different ways you can do that. But for me, I'm trying to use every resource and avenue I have for that. And, and just by just speaking on that, like for, for a guy like myself, or I'm sure anybody, it's, it's happening so much. It's automatic. It's, it's kind of become like information overload. Um, and I didn't know about Elijah McClain. I'm not going to lie. Like I, I didn't know about him until, and I found out through your post. Um, so that's just, you know, just let people know, like there's different ways, like you can use your platform. Some people may criticize social media and, you know, the pros and cons of it, but you know, there's a positive way that you can use it. And like I said, just through avenues like that, I was able to become aware of, you know, something that wasn't necessarily directly on my radar, it didn't happen in my neighborhood, but it's happening. And that's, I think, what's the issue is a lot of time, you know, if you take it way back to Boys in the Hood, like one of the last things that was said at the end of the movie, like it's basically because it's not happening in your neighborhood. Yep. So you don't care, you know, and until it hits your front door, you, you're not going to care. You're not going to be able to empathize with me, you know. No question. 100%, Bird, 100%. And, and to your point, like, I didn't know about that story until this week, which is why, like, I was like, why aren't more people talking about this? Like, that, that was my reaction, actually. And so then I was like, all right, well, this need, the level of this needs to be risen. Like, I'm going to do everything I can. I'm only one person, I'm do everything I can. And also, but like, I agree with you. Everyone can contribute in different ways. You know, I've obviously been out protesting. I've done other things, too. But, like, everyone contributes in different ways. But the criticize social media if you want the information is super important and that's what i think um is often lacking especially in the black community is we need to gain access to the proper information so for how we can bring about change i was on a zoom call last night and um you know a buddy of mine organizes it i'm a part of a couple of different groups that are kind of trying to um 
you know, provide further information and dialogue, oftentimes with folks that are inside the system. And so this had two prosecutors inside the system who were talking about like, what are practical ways? And the thing that struck me was one of the prosecutors was like jury duty. She said, two ways jury duty makes uh, these things better. One, we need to change policies around jury duties. And a lot of states and municipalities, if you have a felony, you cannot be a juror. And so she brought up the demographic of Newark where I believe she's a prosecutor or a former prosecutor. And she said in Newark, something crazy like 20 something or 30 something percent of black men have had a felony. So that eliminates the jury pool of black men significantly. So it's not really often a pool of a, a, a jury of your peers, right? She also talked about how some businesses do not provide work paid work leave for jury duty. So if you're at a job, no different than maternity leave or any of the other essential things that have to be given so employees can exercise their civic duty to this country, there needs to be a policy for paid work leave for jury. So these are like practical policy things. But then from an individual standpoint, like when you get that juror card, like don't try to get out of it. <laughs> like go down and do your civic duty and be on that jury because you don't know what that case is gonna be and you don't know how that can impact somebody's life just having that additional mind with maybe a different life experience. Because it only takes one juror. You know, every criminal case has to be unanimous. Right? So it only takes one that may see a different angle. And just to give you an example of this, my godfather was on a jury in Seattle. And the case was between an immigrant man and uh, another dude. And the immigrant man at the time was either an Uber driver or a taxi driver, I'm not sure. And he didn't speak very good English. And so because his diction wasn't great and the way he was explaining the story wasn't great, they go into the like post debriefing of the jury and they do like a preliminary roll call. Preliminary roll call was 10 to two or like seven and two. I don't remember what it was, nine jurors or 12 jurors. But there are only two people that didn't think the, the, the judgment should go to the other person. And my godfather was like, hold on. <laughs> and like started to break down the case. And he's a, one of the most smartest people I know. Started to break down the case like fact by fact by fact by fact. Because he felt like people just kind of wanted to get out of there. And he said, part of the other dude's case was how the cars were parked on the street and he was like i've been down there like at four o'clock on a weekday there's no way that street was empty right he's like so it actually makes more sense with the other guys and so they broke it down and they end up swaying the entire jury in the opposite direction and that was one person that did that but he did that not by pressure or anything just like being an active intentive mind that said we need to give this person justice right and so, um, yeah, I went on a little bit of a rant, but yeah, man, I, I, I'm trying to do everything I can. I just feel like if we don't keep the pressure on, if we just, if we feel like, okay, that was cool for like a month, like it'll go back to normal. And normal was not cool. <laughs> like normal was not cool, right? So, so and, 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 and not losing the momentum and, and, and keeping, I hate to even use this term, so I'm not, I was gonna say keeping the foot on it, and I don't wanna use that anymore. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Um, the NBA is going to return. Looks like. Yep. What, what's what's your thoughts on? Does it help promote what's going on? Is it going to hurt? Um, do you hit them where it hurts in the pocket? What what's your thoughts on all of that? How or how can it be beneficial? Or how how it may hurt? 
So I think too often in our country, uh, people that care about causes have been forced to choose between uh, their family and the cause. And what I mean by that is, do you risk losing your job for the cause? And it's no different than slavery. Like if you spoke up, you lose your life. It's the same thing. And it's not just black people, it's people in general right now. A lot of people cannot afford to bring the type of awareness or buck up against the system the way they want. Cause they're like, yo, I got a kid. I got a two year old I gotta take care of, right? I got three old I gotta take care of. NBA players are uniquely positioned. Here's why they're uniquely positioned. And here's what I would do if I was an NBA player, I'm not, but here's why they're uniquely positioned. NBA players are uniquely positioned because the way they collectively bargain, right? Nothing gets done without them. Nothing gets done without them, right? So it's not like, um, you know, you're working at Amazon or Ernst & Young or some other company where they're just gonna go and they're going to find a replacement for you tomorrow, right? And to try to get everyone on the same pages can be tough. 450 NBA players, I might be wrong, but I think there's 450 NBA players, right? The amount of impact they could have is astronomical. Having said that, I don't think they should not play. Here's what I think, if I was an NBA player, what I would be pushing for is this, we are going to come back, but here are our set of conditions for us to come back. Our set of conditions are, and lay those out and make sure those conditions are so specifically targeted towards the movement that no one can ever question whether or not the NBA as an organization, all the chairmen slash owners of the team and the organizations understood how important this was. If the NFL players did that when Cap kneeled, the NFL would have caved, right? Because it's too big of a business. They can't just go on and let things like that happen. They're not gonna allow for a walkout. In my opinion, it's why baseball's union, say what you want about it, is so strong. They are always on the same page. I mean, they just, the way they move, you know, the NBA I think is getting there. I think football, in my opinion, is the worst in terms of them being able to ban and push forward. Some of that I think is demographic issues, but that's a whole different conversation. But if I was an NBA player, or if I was in a position of leadership, my message would not be let's sit out so that people won't have basketball because it's a distraction. I disagree with that. People are gonna find distraction wherever they want. It's gonna be comedy, it's gonna be Netflix, it's gonna be whatever. People are gonna find entertainment. I don't buy into the idea that because there's entertainment, people aren't gonna be focused on the movement. What I do buy into though, is that they are uniquely positioned to raise a level of awareness. And that cannot be something like a t-shirt. That cannot be something like a patch. It cannot be something like that. It needs to be something substantial that is committed to, that may even need to be collectively bargained and put in as a side letter into the collective bargaining agreement that the league commits to. When I say the league, I mean the owners, right? Because the players and the owners collectively bargain together. That's personally what I think should happen. I don't know whether that'll happen. I mean, ultimately that's gonna be up to LeBron and CP and the, the guys that are in leadership positions and guys, but um, I think the NBA players are uniquely positioned to uh, really provide change. And I think, you know, whether or not that's what they're doing or that's on the radar, I don't, I don't have any insight on that. Yeah. And, and on a, on a, I know you mentioned NBA, like those set of specific rules, um, this kind of all just came back around. You talked about the owners and what they could do, but let's bring it back to some of that stuff that Bomber, uh, Steve Bomber does do in the community and how he has helped some of those uh, people of color and probably in many communities, but definitely in your community. Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
<laughs> I'm going to give the 60 second version. Uh, but if you, I'm, I guess it's a shameless plug. If you go to bombergroup.com, you can read more about what they're doing. But Steve and his wife, Connie, do a ton of work around this idea of trying to provide upward economic mobility. What does that mean, upward economic mobility? In general, Steve has a philosophy that like, only government can really change who the middle class is. But if you're born poor, whether you're black, white, Asian, Hispanic, you should have an equal opportunity for upward mobility, right? So the same percentage of folks that are born poor, no matter your skin color, should have the same opportunity for upward mobility. And that is not the case in this country, right? So it's not just about rich people. If you are born poor and white in this country, you have a significantly better chance statistically to increase your economic mobility than a black person or a Hispanic person, which is crazy when you think about it, right? So how do you impact upward economic mobility? And they support a ton of things in what I would call the ecosystem from really birth to work, from the time a mother is pregnant all the way to uh, time a kid graduates from college. Through scholarship programs, they have teacher programs. Turns out that it's very important statistically speaking, it has been shown that a black kid having a black male teacher has significantly better chance of not only continuing their education, but uh, of reaching college. Uh, and so they, they, they focus on some key outcomes, but they support the entire ecosystem from birth to work. And that's social services, they do some healthcare stuff, they do a ton of lobbying. Um, and so this is work that the vast majority of which they don't name, right? So like, you're not gonna see, you know, Balmer's name on a building, right? You're not gonna see, that's not the way he moves. And that's what I appreciate about him because you don't see many people at his level that do it because it's the right thing to do. And that's the only reason they do it. He doesn't do it because he wants a team after their building. He doesn't do it because he wants programs named after him. That's not what he does, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the work they're doing is amazing. And I think he, you know, he is a, I think a model for how uh, many of the other chairmen and owners can engage with the community. Yeah, he's even doing that in, um, in Inglewood. Yeah, he just started that, I think, about a few months ago. So, you know, because I know they're going to be moving into that community. So, like, he's really doing some really good, really, really good things. And, and Craig, is, is if you can give your input, obviously, you're you're affiliated with the Clippers and you know a little bit about Bomber, but you played under Donald Sterling, correct? Yeah, I played under Sterling, but what's crazy is – I mean, I've had one interaction with him. Obviously, I wasn't the star, you know what I'm saying, like a Baron or a Blake to really get those different interactions. But, um, yeah, it was something definitely, like, in that situation, it was kind of creepy. Like, uh, one time we had beat the Lakers outright. And, um, you know, I had, a, I had a really, really good game, you know what I'm saying? And uh, I think it was, like, one of one of my better games I had. He comes in, he just, he's just like – comes and just taps me on my, like, my back or my shoulder, gives me a smile and shit and kept moving. It was like a white gaze. It was, like, weird. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, I don't know about that, dude, but you feel me? Like, but I, if I, and this is my thing, like, when Baron said what he said about, like, you know, Bomber used to heckle him or whatever, I felt like if, if I actually, like, Sterling. hurt, yeah, sorry, Sterling. If I actually heard that, I would, I would have definitely said something right then and there, and there probably would have been some some really, really big problems, you know what I'm saying? But it was just the fact of sometimes when you're in a different position of playing or being the star, you don't get as much um, 
I don't even know the term for it. I, sometimes you don't get put in certain conversations, you know what I'm saying? Because you're not making the most money, you know what I'm saying? But at the same time, like, I felt that because every time I would go somewhere, it'd be a person to say, man, I like you guys because you guys are young and, you know what I'm saying, you got something brewing, but I hate your owner. I hate your owner. Like, him as a landlord, et cetera. And I'm like, y'all hit me with all this. I don't even know this. You know what I'm saying? And I think it really came about just when that whole situation happened because that girl actually went to Fairfax with me. Oh, wow. So, like, you feel me? Like, we the same class. Like, that's, and, and which is in my mind, I don't, I don't even know I'm supposed to say this, but, like, her name of high school is different. I'll just say that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, like, it's, like, it's close, but it's, it's just all weird, man. And it's just like, I, to be honest, I'm just sick and tired of hearing all that, that BS. You know what I'm saying? Like being a black man in, in the inner city of Los Angeles has never really been fun. Cause it's always, you have to choose, choose whether you go death or not, basically. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know what I'm saying? So it's just like, I, like being older and I've like, we've talked about it. I've been in some situations with police too, that, I felt like I had no business really being in, you know what I'm saying? And and just the fact of always being around a cop makes me uncomfortable. And my, <laughs> and my uncle was a cop, you feel me? So it's just like, it's, it's just a difficult thing that definitely needs to be talked about and needs to be deaded like forever. But I know it ain't gonna take one day. It's gonna, you know, we gotta climb a mountain, but hey, I mean, God gives his soldiers the most, the toughest battles, you know what I'm saying? And I feel like that's maybe why being darker skin, you always got a tough battle, you know what I'm saying? Because I, I feel like when you're the darker skin, it's it's almost like the real diamond gem, you know what I'm saying? How much you got to make it out of your own city just to become something, you know what I'm saying? And not having those resources, like like you just talked about, being um, being born poor. Majority of us in life are born poor, straight up. But sorry to get on that and, and to uh, run. But, uh, Craig, Craig, I got a question. Did you, did, did you guys ever interact uh, with the girl? Did we ever interact? Yeah, like was she was she ever like was she around the team ever? The, no. So this is what happens normally. Like when we like when we warm it up. He'll always walk in, but he'll walk in with 12 of them. Oh, wow. 12 girls. Wow. And they'll all be sitting in there. His wife be like right there. And it'd be a gang of them. And I'd be like, I see her every time. I know you. I know you. <laughs> that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's, yeah. it's crazy. But I, yeah, many times seen her and, and different ones. And it's just like, oh, you just flamboyant. You're just out here, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't care. <laughs> I really don't care. Really don't care. We're going we gonna to break up the seriousness a little bit. I got a couple more questions for you, Todd, before we let right. you We're going to break it up. With Wait, a let me tell them this last serious one then. Okay. Right, about, because I think it's the most about Chaz. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, I want to I hear your opinions about it. You feel me? So, um... I'll just say this because I, I haven't been up there and seen it. Um, I've only talked to people that have seen it and been around it. Yeah. Um, and I think that 
what happens in these moments where there is such a heightened awareness of what's going on, people do everything they can to put pressure on politicians to make the right decision, right? And so I don't know that I would have gone about it like that, <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, but I mean, whoever organized that can probably say they're the only person, I think, since the Revolutionary War to actually take over a part of America. <laughs> like they have however many blocks and they are ruling that area. But having said that, like ultimately, I mean, it's gonna eventually get broken up, I'm sure, hopefully peacefully. But what it's done, especially in Seattle, is it's, it's really put pressure on the mayor and on the police, uh, chief of police, to figure out like, what solution do we have for the issues around police? What people don't know is that Seattle police have been under, uh, I don't know exactly what the term is, but basically federal oversight uh, for like 15 years. I know they were on it for at least 10 years. And that was because of civil rights violations, multiple civil rights violations. Yeah. So Seattle police were under that review. So there's a ton of different oversight pieces that Seattle police have. I don't know the numbers and know, I've been out of Seattle a while now, I don't know how much better it's gotten. So I don't want to speak on CSPL specifically. But what I can say is that that's happening in Seattle, right? And Seattle's looking at how they're going to do things like, you know, reformat and adjust or defund the police and all those things. Yeah. The more conversations that are happening in the more cities, the more likely it is we're going to see nationwide change, right? Because right now on the federal level, nothing's going to happen when it comes to these uh movements right nothing happened on the federal level significant i should say um but lo local municipalities have a ton of ability to implement their own laws so uh i mean we'll see how it shakes out but um the fact they're having the conversations about defunding the police i think is i think goes to show like it's working you know same way i feel about and i've said this openly same way i feel about riots like i'm not for looting and stealing things from people's stores and those things but you have to understand simply looting and the destruction of property and those things, like that anger that's coming out, the level of awareness that it brought, right, would not have happened if there wasn't looting. If you don't believe me, look at the news. People are still protesting. I'm in LA. There's still thousands of people protesting. It doesn't get the same media coverage, right? Yeah. And so you have to understand that like these things are things that help bring the awareness. I don't think it's a long-term solution, but traditionally, things like that have been a part of the conversation of change. They're not the main part. They're not the most important part, but they are a part of it. Yeah. yeah. What want to jump in with the Farnan fables? <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Want to explain to, to him what it is? Oh, the sound's messing up. Yeah. All right, I'm back. Uh, yeah, so Farn and Fables, I think, will be short again this week. Yuka and Tavi are just too solid, but um, what the Coach Skinner episode, Farn and Fables, can be really long. Um, but so the only, the I was laughing before because one thing I remember from our freshman year when you were talking, Tavio, about Troy being you know a great mentor is I do distinctly remember one day after practice in like the uh, lounge of the locker, our old locker room, um, our old working class locker room that we had. Um, <laughs> Tavio fell asleep in one of the chairs 
And I just remember Troy looking around at everybody and just like, and Troy like climbed up on the chair, like right over him and just goes, ah! <laughs> so even mentors crack once in a while. Um, I remember that. And then, uh, <laughs> that was a good one. Um, more recently, this was like three years ago, I was out with some friends in Chicago where I lived at the time. I'm in a bar and I turn around and I like do like a triple take and it's time you know, I look over at him and he looks at me and he's like, so uh, that, uh, and then we, we uh, caught up for a little bit, but that, that's, Bro, that's all I have. You yeah. never know where you're going to find Tommy at, man. You don't. Yeah. don't. So I, I was so, it's crazy. I was actually in Chicago. One of my former players who's like a little brother to me, super close to the most graduating from law school. Uh, at Northwestern. Nice. That's why I was there. Uh, but yeah, yeah, those are those are good ones. Those are good ones. I'm saying right. ask him about his winners at Northwestern. <laughs> That'll make Boston seem toasty. Yeah. <laughs> you catch Tom anywhere, man. Me and me and Tom hung out in Portland. We do the wedding together. We was at a wedding in Seattle, Jamal's wedding. Yeah. So. Hey. I got a whole lot of fables on time. We're going to keep them over there, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, last couple of questions, Tom. Um, implement one realistic policy uh, change that could go into effect immediately, what would it be to help you know, police brutality, social injustice, whatever you think um, can help the world? Uh, so it's, it's a great, I think depending on the city, I'll give you three, um, okay. civilian review board, uh, which and I'm going to specifically talk about police reform. Cause I think there's a ton of layered issues. There's economic education, but let's talk about police, uh, civilian review board. Some cities already have it, but it is a good thing to have. Right. So civilian review board. Um, the second I would say is, uh, ending qualified immunity, uh, which essentially allows police officers to be personally liable. Uh, when they commit these acts of crime, even though they are acting as on behalf of the police department. Uh, and the third, which goes along with that, is mandatory insurance mandates for police officers. And the reason why those go hand in hand is because if a police officer cannot be insured, they cannot be a police officer, right? So it allows for the insurance industry to provide a check on police officers that have these horrible records that shouldn't be police officers themselves, but have been kept in their role because of how strong the police unions are, right? Mm -hmm. Those would be three that I would say. Civilian review board, any qualified immunity, and mandatory insurance mandates for police officers. I think if those three things happen, you will see significant amount of um, bad police officers no longer there. <laughs> uh, right. I agree. That's a, that's a great one. That, that insurance thing, I, I never thought about that. If you, you start getting the people who it really affects their money, they have to kick out money for your mistakes. Yep. They'll start making some some decisions like he's got to go. And that's how it is in a lot of other walks of life. Um, you know, if you start making too many mistakes, costing the company money, I mean, you, can, you either can't drive, you can't yep. drink, you can't, you know, whatever the case may be. So, again, everybody should be kind of falling under the same umbrella. No question. And you could even do it where, because right now cities pay out those lawsuits, right? <laughs> because the police are acting on behalf of the cities. If you took it from the police pensions, you may see internal accountability, right? Right. So 
so I think there's different ways where you can provide an additional check, um, you know, because that's part of the issue is that's just so hard, very similar to teachers in a lot of states. It's so hard to get the, the bad performers out. And then lastly, obviously, you have family. Um, you work with a lot of young kids, um, you know, trying to put them on the right path. Um, what right now, you know, the things that you've seen over the last couple of months or so, what gives you hope that you're going to leave this place better for them? Like it's going to be a better situation for them. I mean, say what you want about this generation of kids. They are active. Like I have never been more proud than I've been over the last month and a half to see all these kids out there, like doing amazing things, organizing protests, like setting up, you know, one clickable, you know, email blast that will go to your representative. I mean, just like the things they've been doing to continue to push the movement forward, not only gives me hope, it makes me feel like, you know what, like, regardless of what happens like right now, like we are in a better place than we would have been, right? Um, so I guess that, that is part of the things that it, yeah, I think the way, they've, the way they've led this movement, I mean, this has been a movement led by uh, the younger generation, you know, they've led it uh, and they've maintained it, you know? So, whereas, you know, I, I said like on the first day of protest, I was like, man, you know, with COVID and everything that was going on, I was worried, you know, I was really worried. And I said, man, like, I wish I was 2021, 20, I'd be out there. Yeah. And by the third day, I was like, I, I just need to get out there. <laughs> like, I, was like, I was like, I just got to get out there, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's like, they gave that inspiration to me. Because in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, you know, young people should really leave this. Let me do what I can behind the scenes. So um, I think the way they showed up, you know, they showed up and they showed up strong and they showed up consistently. And this is one of the few situations that I've seen in my time where, like, older guys, because let's face it, we're part of the older guys now, um, they're giving it up to the young, like, the young crowd and saying, you got it, we're, we're following. Yep. Like, whatever y'all want to do, we're following. And if we can provide some wisdom, some resources financially, because we, we, we're already there. Yep. We're, you know, they're not, but they have the energy. They're, like you said, they're planning, plotting, and strategizing. And like older people are just allowing them to lead, and we're following. Yep. And that's really happened. Like, for the most part, you know, in all walks of life, the older basketball players still think they're the best. The older rappers still think they're the best. Yep. And everything yep. else. But right now, in this, in this situation, the older people are saying, y'all got it. Like, yep. Yep. It's, their, it's their world to run, man. It's no really question. Big time. No question. Well, I got no more questions. You guys got anything else? Nah, man, this has been great, man. This has definitely been a really, really good one, man. Todd, you said some really, really good, good points, man. We really appreciate you, bro. Um, you're really doing some really great things, man. I really do. I appreciate all you guys, man. Seriously. I'm glad we're still doing this, man. I'm glad we're still staying connected. And, you know, people say it's just basketball, but ultimately it's not, man. Like you build these lifelong relationships that um, last you forever. So, yeah. yeah. Eight years and count, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and if there's anything, with everything that you're doing, I, I think I speak for my brothers here. Um, if there's anything, the BCF podcast, Bird, Craig, and Farnan, Boston College family could get involved with, and we can help out at yeah. all. I, we, we'd love to join in you know any way possible so just i know you i know you out there so we can help out at all 
I appreciate that, man. I definitely will be calling on you. Uh, probably to be around some of this policy stuff. So yeah, I definitely will be calling on you. All right. And Tadio, is there either social media, websites, anything around some of the stuff you've been working on, either with kids, with anything you're doing, anywhere you'd want to direct people to check out? I mean, I'm really most active on LinkedIn and uh, Instagram. Uh, and there's nothing, I would say, super concrete from a policy standpoint that we have right now. But there are things that I'm working on. Uh, my social media is just my name, Tavio Hobson, everywhere. So, or, Thanks, Tom. Uh, yeah, I love you guys, man. Thank you. Love you too, bro. Have a great day.